Our scripture today is from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Where therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew that he was in man. The word of the Lord. In 1924... A Swedish-American from Chicago named Warner Salman drew a charcoal portrait of Jesus for the cover of the Covenant Companion, which is and was the denominational magazine for the Evangelical Covenant Church. And in 1935, he did his first oil version of this same drawing. And in 1940, the students at North Park Seminary requested for devotional purposes that Salman paint another version of this portrait for them. And this version uh, caught the eye of some intrepid religious marketers who saw something in that portrait that they could sell. And boy, were they right. And so Solomon's head of Christ, yeah, has been reproduced more than half a billion times since 1940. That is 500 million times reproductions of this of this portrait and don't worry if you think that we're one of those churches that does not have Solomon's head of christ if you go downstairs to the blue room there you will find the portrait of jesus painted by Solomon. a gentleman named stephen prothero who's a, a scholar of religion at boston university wrote this book called the american jesus how the son of god became a national hero and he writes there during the post-war revival of the 1940s and 50s as protestants and catholics downplayed denominational differences in order to present a unified front against the menace of godless communism Solomon's jesus became far and away the most common image of jesus in american homes churches and workplaces thanks to Solomon and the savvy marketing of his distributors Jesus became instant, this Jesus became instantly recognizable by Americans of all races and religions. And for my money, Solomon's head of Christ is the defining image of Jesus to this day in our culture. He's, he's white, he's handsome, manly, yet calm, placid, and mild at the same time. This is an extremely palatable portrait. Of Jesus. Perhaps the truest takeaway from all this, though, is, is Jesus plus money and marketing. It's as American as apple pie. Lou, you can kill 
you can kill the image. But here's my question for you. Could that Jesus, who we were just looking at, do what Jesus does in the Gospel of John this morning? Could this Jesus be filled with righteous anger? Could this Jesus form a whip and drive the animals from the temple? Could he be consumed with zeal for his father's house? Could this Jesus upset anyone? The commercialization of religion is nothing new. Right? It's as old as humankind. In our passage this morning, we see confrontation between Jesus and this system. And what we see, it reveals several marvelous truths about who Jesus is, but it also reveals some unflattering truths about ourselves. And so that's what we're going to look at more this morning, three things. What exactly is Jesus confronting in this passage, and what does this confrontation reveal about who he is? And lastly, what does this reveal about us? So first, what is Jesus confronting? John tells us that it was the Passover time, and Jesus arrived and went up to Jerusalem to observe this festival. This is the first of three Passovers in the Gospel of John. The other Gospels just give us one right at the end of Jesus' life. But John gives us three Passovers, and so this is where the, uh, you know, the belief comes uh, that Jesus had a three-year ministry. And in the other Gospels, this event is placed at the end. It's the, the, the event that leads to Jesus' arrest and his, his trial and his crucifixion. But John places this at the beginning. It's kind of the intro to his ministry right after this miracle at, at, at the wedding in Cana. And so John is doing something by placing this at the beginning. He, he wants us to understand from the very beginning that Jesus' ministry is a confrontation. In some ways, a, a fulfillment of what came before. As he says at the beginning, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the turning the water to wine in the stone jars. Stone and water. You know, Moses gets water from the rock, but Jesus turns that water to wine. It's a new covenant, a new day. And Jesus' timing for this act is not incidental. Passover is the time when, if you're a male Jew living within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you're expected to make this pilgrimage to worship in the temple. And of course, it, it attracted people from all over the world. Jews from the diaspora would descend upon Jerusalem for the festival, and so... A city that was large, I mean, 100,000 people would swell to five to ten times that size during the Passover festival. And Passover was a time where God's people would remember and celebrate God's greatest act of all. When he had liberated the Hebrews from their slavery in Egypt and the angel of death slew the firstborn of Egypt and spared the firstborn of Israel, whose doors were marked with the blood of the Lamb. So it wasn't just a time of looking backward, it was a time of remembering forward in hope and expectation that God is going to do something like this again. That God would liberate his people from foreign oppression and reestablish his kingdom on earth. It was a time for sacrifice, for celebration, and for hope. And celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem in the first century under Roman occupation, it would have been like celebrating the 4th of July in an America under Nazi rule, as is envisioned in the Netflix series, or not Netflix, but Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle. If you've watched that, celebrating the 4th of July, it means something different when you're under enemy occupation. And so, when you're celebrating this festival, you're not just looking backward. 
to what happened once. You're, you're looking at the present moment and hoping and praying that something similar can happen again. So Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover and he's on a mission. He enters the temple and, and the text tells us that he finds the people who are selling oxen and sheep and the money changers. Jesus doesn't just you know, happen to bump into them and, and then this occurs. Jesus goes into the temple with a mission. He goes in there to mess things up. He goes in there for a confrontation. And so before we get into it anymore, just a word in the money changers and the sheep and dove and and oxen sellers defense. You often hear the interpretation that, why is Jesus so mad? Well, this line of, of interpretation goes that Jesus confronted these people because what they were doing with their buying and selling and money changing practices is they were exploiting the poor. That they were kind of like, uh, if you've ever been to an amusement park or a sporting event, you know, you're a captive audience. And so you feel like you're being exploited by the concessioners because they can charge you, you know, $10 for a 12-ounce can of beer. Or they can charge you $15 uh, for a hot dog that would cost you $3 out on the street. And so you feel like you're getting hosed. You paid a lot to get in, and then you're a captive audience. And they, they check your bags. So they won't even let you bring in food from the outside or popcorn unless you're willing to like sneak it in some places you know we've I've snuck it into a movie theater myself but you feel like you're getting hosed and so you're like man if jesus went into you know u.s bank stadium and he flipped over the nachos like we'd be we'd be on board with that you know or he poured out the mike and ikes at the movie theater like that's legit we get that we can sympathize with that and so you know the the this says the interpreters who go this way say well you know people who sell animals they'd sell them for twice what you could buy them on the street or the money changers they would charge a 33 percent conversion fee instead of the two three percent that was typical but the evidence for that those kind of practices is is scant and the animal sellers and money changers they were providing an essential service for the pilgrims think about it if you're traveling a long way it's a real pain to bring a sheep or an ox, or, you know, even a dove. you got to carry it in a cage. Like, it's very difficult to travel with a sacrificial animal over a long distance. So it's much easier if when you get there, you can just buy it. Incredibly valuable service. Or the money changers. If you were a Jewish male over the age of 20, you had to pay the temple tax. And the temple tax was uh, half a shekel, which is like two days' wages. So, and there was only one coin that they would accept. And it was the, the, the Tyrian uh, shekel. Only currency accepted in the temple. So you'd bring your money from wherever in, in you were in the empire, and you would change that money into a Tyrian shekel, and then you could pay the temple tax. And you could keep your good standing in the community. And, and the standard practice was a very small fee, you know, 2-3%. What we pay, what businesses pay now on like a credit card transaction. So nothing exorbitant or exploitative about it, especially given the essential service that was being provided to the pilgrims. And so what seems clear from this passage is that the reason that Jesus was so moved with this righteous anger had nothing to do with exploitative practices. Like, that if Jesus would have, he would have been okay with selling animals and okay with changing money if only the fees had been more reasonable. It's like saying, you know, the problem with waterboarding, you know, isn't that it's torture, but those administering it should be using Evian instead of tap water because that would make it better. Jesus has a problem with the whole system. Not just some exploitative 
aspect of it. Which brings us back to that question. What is Jesus' problem? Why is he so mad? What is he so whipped up, pun intended, about? And we see the clue, the answer, really, in verse 16, where Jesus says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. One commentator suggests a, a modern paraphrase of it could be, Do not make my father's house into a shopping mall. The reason that Jesus is so mad that he, he cleanses the temple is, is that it has become a symbol of the commodification of religion. That was what was supposed to be about a covenantal relationship had become commercial and, and transactional. One of those relationships where it's, what can I get out of this, is the way that people operate and think. And we've all had transactional relationships in our lives before, and those are not good. They're not deep. They're not covenantal. And so Jesus' cleansing of the temple is his critique and rejection of religion as every human effort to manage our relationship with God on our own terms. Right? Religion says, do this, and you'll get God. Input A will give you output B. But grace says, do nothing, and God will get you. And a marketplace says that, that grace is something that can be bought and sold, and with apologies to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what's so amazing about grace isn't that it can be had on the cheap. It's even worse than that. It's free. And we can see the commercial, commercialization of Christianity in our own day, in our own culture, how it's become just another lifestyle product that can be bought and sold. Another big box store or one-stop shop. There's a large, what we would call a megachurch in the, uh, in the suburbs that uh, we visited after we moved back. And, and what struck me about the experience was just how well-produced everything was. Parking was a breeze. We dropped our kids off and the staff was so friendly and the kids' space looked like something out of a storybook fantasy. We sat down in our theater-style seats, no uncomfortable pews, without pew cushions, some of them. Uh, 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 so no uncomfortable pews. We watched as this amazing band led us in, you know, these power praise ballads. And they're projected on these two giant screens, and, and, and the camera work was beyond professional. You know, tight shots on the guitar solo, cross-dissolving to the worship leader with his eyes closed, earnestly praising God. And then the message came, and it was, it was practical and applicable. And there was only one hitch in the entire experience that I could see. It was when one of the sermon slides didn't get switched in time. You know, the pastor was making point one, point two, point three, And somewhere between point one and point two, there was a delay in switching the side. And so the pastor broke character just for a moment to go. Oh. And you could see there was a righteous anger burning the same anger that <laughs> Jesus had when he formed that whip and cleansed the temple was in that snap. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be on the tech team <laughs> after that service. I'm more subtle with my berating. Uh, Bob will talk after the service. I, I never try to embarrass him in front of, 
in front of people. It was the one time someone broke character. And as we left, you know, we got this glossy postcard that, that was advertising the next sermon series. And we walked back, picked up our kids, went through the cafe. And then a smiling usher held the door open when we walked back to our car. The, the, there was traffic people to get us out in an orderly fashion. And what was striking to me about the entire experience was it was so frictionless. It was so easy to come and go. And, and how truly excellent each and every part of the service was, the experience was. And clearly, this, this was no accident, right? This was thoughtful, purposeful, intentional, that, that, that this had been crafted to appeal to the sensibilities of your average middle-class American. Lots of parking, free childcare, and no one invading my personal space. And if I'm being honest, sign me up for that, right? We joke about the parking lot here at church. It's, it's behind the dumpster. Um, and so there's two parking spaces here at church. That is our parking lot. But the one image that I couldn't shake from my head with that whole experience was that snapping of the pastor. Genuine anger on his face when that one moment didn't go according to plan. But who can blame him? Because the expectations are set up, right? That you are going to give people excellence. Excellence is what people expect. And if you can't pull that off, guess what? There's another church that will. I think mega churches are easy to pick on because they're a clear instantiation of a a consumer-oriented religiosity in our culture. But before we get all smug and self-satisfied, isn't there just as much danger for us to operate according to market rather than mission principles? You know, the megas, they reach the masses. But we offer a more boutique, bespoke artisanal experience of church. We've got Christianity in the city for people who like good coffee and bike lanes and the neighborhood vibe. And while the megas, they sell excellence, we sell authenticity and real community. And we are wont to display that we have the correct social consciousness. You know, we're not like them. They're KFC. We're revival. They're IHOP. We're our kitchen. They're Starbucks. We're five watt. Which is a good thing to be. I mean, let's, it's delicious. But, uh, so we are just as apt to remake our version of the Christian faith according to the principles of our own marketplace, right? Our own consumer demands for God to give us the version of the faith that confirms all of our priors. You know, here's what a church like ours and a church like that mega we have in common. We both need Jesus to come in and drive out of our hearts the ways that we've turned our relationship with God into just another transaction, just another product, just another expression of our consumer preferences. To do something about how we've tailor-made God to, to fit what we already know and we already believe. And we need to stand wild-eyed, wide-eyed, face-to-face with the wild-eyed, whip-yielding, grace-pouring-out Jesus that we meet in Scripture. You know, we want Warner Solomon's head of Christ. What we need is John's Jesus to whip us into shape. Our religiosity, just like the temple, needs to be torn down and rebuilt by Jesus. So that's the next thing we're going to look at. What did Jesus confront? We saw that. And now we're going to see what this tells us about who Jesus is through this confrontation. 
And so John, as I've said several times, is a gospel of signs. Events pointing beyond themselves to a greater truth and a deeper reality that you can't just read off of the surface. And so Jesus disrupts the entire temple system by stopping it, if only for a moment. And so he does this, and naturally and understandably, the Jewish leadership asks for a sign. They're basically saying, show us your credentials. Who do you think you are? Not just any, you know, wandering prophet, would-be Messiah from Galilee can come waltzing into the temple and pull a stunt like this. If you're going to do this, you better have a good reason. You better have some credibility. You better be able to back it up. So they say, show us a sign why you did this. And so while while John is a gospel of signs, always in the gospels, in John and the other ones, the demand for a sign is actually an act of unbelief. It's just another, another expression of the human religious impulse to get God on our own terms. God, show me a sign. And you better give it to me because the customer is always right. So Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the only sign you're going to get. Resurrection. And you're going to have to wait for it. And they understandably think that Jesus is talking about the actual physical temple. But from a post-Easter perspective, we can see that Jesus, and, and, and John tells us, he was talking about his own body. And by saying this, Jesus is making a remarkable claim about himself. I, I think it's, you know, you can be so inured to Christianity and have spent so much time in it that you wouldn't see how just really radical this claim was that Jesus was making about himself. I can raise up, this, this body is going to be the new temple. That it's going to do what the temple no longer can. And the community that gathers around me is going to replace this structure. We're going to do what the temple was supposed to do, but can't do any longer. And when you hear it, as, as it must have been heard to the first Christians and in the first century, it, it's so audacious, we can understand why it would have been almost impossible to believe. This type of claim that Jesus makes, I'm the new temple, it brings to my mind that classic, you know, C.S. Lewis trilemma that Jesus is either a lunatic or a liar or Lord. Either you take what he says with the utmost serious or you completely ignore it. And and even though this argument I don't think has purely logical force, there's kind of an intuitive persuasiveness about it. That when we really read and hear the kind of things and claims that Jesus is saying and the claims that he's making, we're, we're confronted with a choice. Either this person was totally full of it, in which case he would be as wicked as any other diabolical figure in history, or he was out of his mind. I mean, just as much God or Messiah as the next person under a freeway overpass with mental illness or... And this is the scariest of all because it demands the most from us. Maybe he actually is who he says he is. In which case, we'd better listen. And so Jesus says, I'm the new temple. And so what's true of the temple is now and will be true of me. And so understand what that means. We have to understand what the temple was for. And so there's, there's just really three things that we can think about. There's more than that, but three things we can hold in our mind that, that the temple was supposed to do that then are fulfilled in Jesus. So the temple is the place most obviously where sacrifices were offered and sin was dealt with. And the sacrificial system ensured that guilt was transferred from the people to 
their offerings, and then they went up in smoke. And so people's sins vanished like so much smoke in the air or incense in the air. So a temple is the place of sacrifice and of atonement and forgiveness. The temple was also the place where God was present. God's glory dwelled in that place. So it was really the meeting place, the fusion between heaven and earth. If you wanted to meet God, you could go there and experience and encounter God's presence. And lastly, the temple was the place of worship. If you really want to worship God, you wouldn't go to a synagogue. That was a house of study. The temple was for worship. It was a place for singing, for pouring your heart out and and making prayers and praises and petitions to the God of the universe. So the temple was about sacrifice. It was about God's presence and it was about worship. And that was the place where you could go to do all those things. And Jesus' claim in light of his rising again is that all of those things have now shifted from the temple to himself. Right? His own self-sacrifice is the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. His death as the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And, and, and him and his community, that's where God's presence can be found. Not in a building, but in a person and in a community gathered Jesus is the word of God becoming flesh and moving into the neighborhood. And so if you want to encounter and experience God, you need to go to Jesus. And the last thing is that Jesus is the focus of our worship. His body and blood are right here in our midst. And we sing hymns of praise to him. That's one of the earliest descriptions of Christianity from the second century. It describes Christian worship because they're saying, well, should we persecute these people or not? What do we do with them, basically? Um, I think it's the letter of Pliny the Younger. It's one of the earliest uh, extra-biblical sources to evidence of Christianity. They say they get together in the morning, uh, and they, they, they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. So the early Christians were known for worshiping Jesus. And we continue that as we sing songs like, you know, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let all angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. We praise the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And we say worship is not about going to church. It's about gathering as church. And where two or three of us are gathered in his name, there Jesus is. And through this confrontation, we see that for Jesus, the temple had become a broken sign. It wasn't pointing beyond itself to God. And instead, it was pointing out what was wrong with the human heart. And because the temple as a sign had become broken, Jesus came and he denounced it. And he announced that through his words and actions, he himself was the fulfillment of that sign. And so whatever it was that the temple was supposed to point to could now be found in him. He was the sign pointing us to God's grace, God's presence, and God's glory. And it brings me very briefly to the last thing that I want to touch on. What this whole encounter teaches us about ourselves. And the reading would be great if we stopped with verse 22. And this confrontation and what Jesus says about his own replacement of the temple. But then John gives us the summary of what happens during the rest of the time of Jesus' first Passover. He tells us that many people believed in the name of Jesus because of the signs that he performed. In John, this is kind of his way of saying a summary of Jesus' ministry. In the other Gospels, you know, Jesus is performing miracles, healing the sick, casting out unclean spirits. Well, John says Jesus performed all these signs in Jerusalem. Many people believe in his name because of these signs. 
But even though they see these signs, we have this clear sense that they don't actually see the true destination of where those signs are pointing, which is to Jesus himself, not Jesus in his glory in this moment, but to the cross. And they want Jesus for what he can give them in that moment rather than wanting Jesus for himself. And a relationship based on what someone can give us is a commercial relationship. It's not a covenant relationship. It's not a commitment. It's not true, genuine, and abiding love. And John tells us that Jesus understood the human heart. He understands how fickle it is. How it will turn in a moment's notice. The people believe in Jesus, but John tells us that that Jesus doesn't believe in them. That's the great irony here. The word that it gets translated, the same word gets translated two ways in this one sentence. It says they believed in Jesus, or, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word. He didn't believe in them. They put their trust in him, but he would not put their trust in them. And Jesus understood that people, apart from God's grace, are endlessly self-centered. Even our best efforts curve back in on ourselves. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that he understood Everything in the human heart. And he still loves us anyways. And the same zeal for his father's house that consumed Jesus when he drove out the sellers of animals and turned over the tables of the money changers is the same consuming zeal with which he loves us. Friends, may we be consumed by that same wondrous love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.